Hey guys, welcome to our last week of Bible study. Good job finishing the study on the book of Mark. Uh, once again, here I am in my living room, still living the life of quarantine, uh, but so thankful that there's still a way for us to finish this thing together. So um, yeah, before we jump into week seven of Mark, I want to just touch on a couple housekeeping things. Um, a couple of you have reached out already and said, okay, what's next? What's next? Gotta love women for that reason. Uh, so yeah, in between now and the spring study, you are welcome to go onto our website and look at, look up some of our old studies, maybe especially if you're new uh, to women, to Veritas Women's Ministry. You can find our old studies as well as our old teachings that go with them um, on our website and then on our podcast, Veritas Women. Um, and then also just be watching our social media because we will probably have some stuff going on around Christmas uh, through both our Instagram and Facebook along the lines of equipping. And um, we're going to be doing something different for our women's Christmas event. So again, just watch social media for that. And then next spring, Lord willing, uh, we will be studying the book of Hebrews we will be using Jen Wilkins' better study. So you can look that up. You can go ahead and order it if you want. Um, but obviously, that's things are changing too quickly right now in 2020 for me to give you any more details than that. But a lot of great stuff to look forward to together. So let's finish the book of Mark. Guys, I'm, I'm so excited. Again, I'm going to pretend like you're here in my living room. Um, I'm excited that we're finishing the study. And that's why I put in my party earrings. And this is my party bun saying, yay, this is fun. Good job, everyone. And I'm cozied up in my favorite blue chair. Um, if you hear some loud noises, uh, it's because I sent my children into the backyard and uh, encouraged them to use their inside voices outside. We'll see if that works. But let's, let's jump in, guys. Mark chapter 15, all the way through to the end. So we are going to spend the majority of our time talking about what the death and resurrection of Christ means for us, like in our life right now. So we're going to spend a lot of time on the application today. But first, I do think we should look at some of the details from Jesus's trial, his crucifixion, and the surrounding events. Okay, so you guys noticed that in chapter 15, and even a little bit before that, uh, the pace of the study has slowed. Did you notice that the word immediately hasn't been used as much? And did you notice that Mark is now using a ton of details in his story? So we should ask, why the change? I mean, come on, Mark, we were flying high. We were racing toward the triumph of Jesus and his coming kingdom. But now the pace has slowed. And, and we notice as Jesus' sufferings increase, our fast-paced movie is now moving slowly. And with this pace slowing, it's, it's like we have to look at the drama. We're forced to look at the bloodshed and the nightmare of chapter 15. And it's pretty horrible to look at. And if we were honest, we wish we could scroll right past this scene. And then you maybe are noting that we made you read it twice this week. Well, this was on purpose, right? 
why the change, Mark? Why change the pace of your story at this point? I mean, we've known where the story is going this whole time, right? We haven't kept it a secret how the end of the story would go. But maybe Mark slowed us down so that we can observe the details. Maybe it's so that we would feel the the anguish and the aches of this narrative. See, I think it's crucial. It is so important for us to pull back that veil that comes with familiar stories and take note of the details. Because it's in the details of chapter 15 especially that really uh, make the story fall fresh on my ears and, and in my soul. So I want to lead us through this first part with a few questions that I think we should ask of this possibly very familiar story. Okay, first question, don't roll your eyes. Who is Jesus? Ladies, you know the answer. Mark 15 reveals Jesus to be king, right? But it's saturated with irony. I mean, did you notice in chapter 15 how many times the word king was used over and over again? That chart that you filled out on day one, it's like every answer was king, king of the Jews, king, king of the Jews, Let's actually look closely, look in your Bibles at this paragraph starting in 15, verse 16 through 20. Do you see how Jesus, although in an ironic way, Jesus is revealed to be king? Uh, Where did they lead him? Inside a palace. And they called together who? This whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, purple meaning royalty, and they put a crown on his head albeit a crown of thorns. They bow down before him. These soldiers, they bow down before him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They kneel down before him. It's a horrible, horribly humiliating scene. Yet it's pretty obvious who Jesus is in this time of humiliation. And actually, I want to pull out a little bit of the text from last week because there was something I I learned just this week. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate um, when he was on trial and, and Jesus finally answers and he calls himself Son of Man, which he has been doing through the whole book. But he talks about how the Son of Man was going to come on the clouds. Okay, to that original audience, they understood this reference to Daniel 7, that when the Son of Man would be coming to earth, from the heavens, from the clouds, he would be coming to bring judgment. But the irony is, who is being judged in this scene? Who is on trial? It's Jesus. And right away in these in these uh, early paragraphs, we feel this tension. And we talked about it in our homework. So after being mocked and tried, Jesus was led to Golgotha. And don't you feel like someone from the sidelines should have stood up and yelled and said, Why? Why is the king being led to this place outside of town? Why is he being led to the place of death, the place of the skull? Why isn't the king taking his throne? I mean, this isn't where we expect a king to go. Why isn't he headed to a throne? We've seen him anointed, right? We have seen him make his way to the royal city, Jerusalem. We've seen him welcomed by adoring fans, waving palm branches. And we even saw him make his first stop in the temple. 
which was something that kings would do. It makes sense then that the next place for this king is a throne. Let's keep reading with that tension kind of hanging over us. So the story moves into the actual crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to pick up and read just a couple verses in 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Okay, next question that I think we should spend some time on is, what did Jesus experience on the cross? Let's bravely take a look at these details. What exactly did Jesus experience on the cross? Well, I think the easiest answer, which is still a good answer, is that he experienced physical pain, right? That's obvious. So think about this. When, what was the worst pain you've ever experienced? Not, not a really fun question to, to sit and think about, but, you know, I, I thought for a long time that the worst pain I had ever felt was sciatica from my pregnancies. You know, that horrible low back pain and it just burns. There was times where I could just hardly even move from, stand, from sitting to standing. That pain was eclipsed the second labor started, right? Nothing could ever hurt more than... Uh, labor. And if we were in person and this wasn't going on the internet, I would probably even share kind of my most, it's not my most embarrassing moment, but the truth that during one of my labors, I strained my vocal cord and had pain whenever I spoke for six weeks. That's how much pain labor was for me. But then that was eclipsed about 10 years later when those babies grew up and I thought I could still hang with them on the basketball court and uh, tore my ACL. That's the worst pain I've ever felt, truly. Worse than labor, worse than sciatica, tearing my ACL. Don't believe it when people tell you it doesn't hurt. It does. Okay, physical pain. We know that Jesus felt physical pain. We don't need to make an overstatement like Jesus had more physical pain than anyone else in that moment because the Bible doesn't necessarily, the Bible doesn't say that. But we don't need to say that to agree that the beatings and the crown of thorns and being nailed to a cross was horrible pain. Again, it's a reason that we read it repetitively this week so that we wouldn't rush past this just because it might be a familiar story. But Jesus experienced so much more than physical pain. Jesus felt the pain of bearing sin. Okay, that would be the second category of pain that he felt. So think of this, ladies. Think of how bad guilt feels when we feel it, right? Think of the heaviness. I I feel so heavy when I lose my temper at my boys or when I know that I've gossiped about someone or when I know I've just lacked character. It feels so heavy. It feels nasty. And I don't even hate sin. Think of the pain that Jesus felt then in his perfect holiness and goodness. Our sins were laid on him, and that would have created a pain for Jesus. And and there's a pretty powerful imagery here, right? 
What was on Jesus' head? A crown of thorns. You ever thought about where we first see thorns in the Bible? The thorns were the evidence of a curse in Genesis 3. It's part of the punishment and the curse that God put on the world was that there would be thorns. Here Jesus is, quite literally, with the curse being put upon him as he took the thorns into his head. But there's more. A third way that Jesus experienced pain was through the abandonment that happened on the cross. In our homework, we saw that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Oh my goodness, to be one of the the Jews in the, the audience, so to speak, and to hear that cry from the cross and to know for it to be familiar for them. And and listen to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The intimacy that rings out from his cry and how it it would just sting your ears. Guys, this abandonment from God is way worse than the loneliness we saw in last week's chapter. We've all felt lonely before, and sadly, maybe many of you have felt abandoned for. But where the difference lies is that is how very close God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were. The triune God, the Trinity was had from before time for all of time has been in perfect, perfect unity. And now there is distance, there is abandonment between Jesus and God. If you read on in Psalm 22, you saw that the effect of this abandonment for the psalmist and and for Jesus is that he says, I find no rest. But there's even more. The fourth way that, that scholars say that Jesus experienced pain is that he bore the wrath of God. And we saw in the text that that was symbolized by the darkness that came middle of the day. Guys, it wasn't just that God turned his back and ignored Jesus's plea. It's that he turned his back and then he poured out his wrath on Jesus. God poured out his wrath until the final drop on Jesus. He was immersed in the wrath of his father. I mean, think of all that judgment we started to see like in chapter 11, right, with the fig tree and the temple. Now we can see that that was just a shadow or a hint at the judgment that would be placed on Jesus. Jesus felt physical pain. He felt the pain of bearing our sin, the pain of abandonment, and the pain of bearing the wrath of God. All right, let's keep moving. So still in chapter 15, let me read a couple verses about the death of Jesus, starting in verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. 
So the next question I want us to ask as we work our way through this is, what did the cross accomplish? Again, we're looking for detail. And we're doing that so that this, um, this story that maybe we think we know so well, so that it would not um, fall into generalizations, but that it would drive deep into our brains, into our heart, into our life. So what did the cross accomplish? What do we see in these verses? Well, we see that the uh, temple, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. From top to bottom, showing that it's God who rips the curtain from top to bottom. So we should say, well, what was the point of that curtain? Well, it was in the innermost part of the temple. And it was had existed from the very first drawings of the tabernacle back in the book of Exodus. And it's what separated the presence of God from the presence of man. It separated God's space and man's space. That holy of holies was the innermost room of the temple and the tabernacle. It's where the glory of God was. It rested on the mercy seat, which was the throne of God. And it was for the safety of the people. We talked about this, I think, in week two, that religion came, and originally religion um, came so that God could dwell with man. But then man came and, and added so much more to the religion to where it actually kept people um, at a distance from God. So in Jesus's death, what, why did that temple curtain tear? It's because we're seeing that Jesus is abolishing religion, that his sacrifice also um, broke down the temple system and replaced it. So the barrier that kept a sinful man from a holy God was now gone. Jesus's sacrifice was the final and most sufficient sacrifice. And because of that, God's presence would no longer be left, no, would no longer be like kept back into this secret chamber, but his glory and his presence was going to bust out of everywhere. And unholy men could find their way near to God. How is that possible? Because our rebellion and our sin was put on Jesus. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. And this is where it gets crazy. And then Jesus's goodness, his righteousness was imputed to us. It was given. It was put on us. You guys remember when we talked about how Jesus came to restore Eden? Well, we looked this week back again at Genesis and we saw that at the entrance or the exit to Eden, there was two cherubim with flaming swords. As if saying like nobody can get back in here unless they go under the sword. Well, Jesus came and he Open that up again. How? He went under the sword. He went under the sword and opened up the way. No longer was there going to be a, a block as we would come back into fellowship with God. What else do we see in these verses? We saw that what the cross accomplished is that it made salvation possible for all nations. We've seen that phrase a couple times in the book of Mark. Here we see a Roman centurion. So someone with a lot of authority in the Roman guard, he is the one who identifies Jesus while on the cross to be the son of God. 
And, and we take note that Mark, again, is a brilliant storyteller. And so we've seen like this progression throughout his book, right? Mark mentions it as the author in the prologue saying that Jesus is the son of God. Here's why I'm writing. I'm going to prove that Jesus is the son of God. But then we heard Jesus called that in his baptism, which we see as his anointing from a voice from heaven. Then on the Mount of Transfig- uh, in the Transfiguration, we again heard a voice from heaven calling Jesus the beloved son. But now here is a Gentile man seeing who Jesus is. Isn't it cool how that pairs with what we were just talking about? That barrier that kept God in that back room was now gone. And a Gentile man, a Roman man, would not be allowed into the temple But now here he is with that temple curtain gone. He has access to see who Jesus is through the eyes of faith. It's like scales fell off off his eyes as that curtain fell. And it's interesting what he says here. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. It's chilling, right? What did he... What was he looking at? What was that scene? What was it like to hear Jesus utter a loud cry and breathe his last? There was something so moving about it that it led this man to see Jesus for who he was. And this is important as we as we keep going, guys, this is so important. What else did the cross accomplish? This is what our study has been moving toward. The cross brought the kingdom of God, right? Remember, Jesus's first recorded words in the book of Mark is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's imminent. It's near. Repent and believe. We see that the cross has brought the kingdom, but but how so? We made sure that we had a definition for the kingdom or a kingdom of God, right? We defined it from, I think, an author named Schreiner, that it means the King's power in the king's place over the king's people. That's what a kingdom is. But here Jesus is on a cross. Power? No, he looks powerless. And here he is hanging on a bloodied tree, not on a throne. He's outside the city of God and the people. Remember those crowds, those adoring fans? They have long since abandoned him. But we slow down again. And we took note that this king was rightly recognized by a centurion while on the cross. And we've learned to see again, like what is what is Mark doing in this story? Obviously, this the story was choppier and, and fast-paced. And I think Kate called it like it's like the dude's gospel, but here we are, women taking on the, the man's version of the gospel. So the things that Mark included are important because there's much that he left out. The things that he has included are there on purpose. What are we supposed to gather from a a centurion rightly declaring who Jesus is? I think we're supposed to, again, feel that tension. Ask that question. Why isn't the king headed to a throne? Right? We're supposed to just sit there and be like, this doesn't fit. Why isn't the king headed to a throne? Unless 
we could see his cross as a throne and his crucifixion as his enthronement. Would that not be the most profound mysteries? Would that not be the most strange mercy in this upside-down kingdom? So Jesus breathes his last on this cursed cross. And when evening comes, he is taken down and he is buried, or he is put in a tomb on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. Let me read a couple verses, starting in chapter 16 now. Uh, When the Sabbath has passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. There's a little royal cue again. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. Okay, what does the resurrection mean for us? This whole study, we keep saying Jesus was so focused on the cross. His face was set like flint on the cross. It's cross-centric, cross-centric, cross-centric. Well, if that's where the story ends, then why in the world does it start with, with the beginning of the good news? Right? If it ends with Jesus's death, then where's the good news? So let's talk about it. What does the resurrection mean for us? Okay, so let's challenge our minds a little bit. Um, So it says that Jesus died before Sabbath. And if you remember from, I think, week two, we talked about how Jesus rested on the Sabbath and rose again in a new week. Okay, that was some of the language we used. Why do we care about what days of the week this is? Okay, Jesus rested in the tomb, if you will, after his work on the cross was done. That was my dog barking. Sorry about that. Okay, here, this has been life-changing for me in the last couple of years. So, so bear with me as I try to tease this out, and I hope it, it encourages you as well. Um, how do we see Jesus as God in this situation, and what does it mean for us? So think about when you clean your house if you clean your house. Even after you clean a room, don't you find yourself still going and tweaking things? Or maybe it's with your job. You know, you write up an email, but you go back and you look at the email and you find, you know, that you need to reword something or or fix a typo. Uh, Your kids come out of the room ready for school and you send them back in because their outfit needs some tweaking, if you will, right? And, and that's what we do. We fiddle with things and, and we return to our jobs over and over again to make edits, to revise them. But if we go back to creation, we notice that God doesn't have to do that, right? When God is done with his work of creation, he rests because he's perfect. He didn't have to revise anything. He didn't have to tweak He didn't have to go back and be like, oh, shoot, I made the trees green. Oh, they shouldn't have been green. 
See, nothing he did had error. Nothing was insufficient. His work in creation was perfect and complete, and that's why he was able to rest. The same principle applies with Jesus. His work on the cross was perfect and complete and sufficient. His work on the cross completely ransomed us from the wrath that we rightly deserve. It completely fixed our relationship with God. His work on the cross completely mended our relationship with God. He he wasn't dead in the tomb because he was weak or because you know he failed to do something or he couldn't overcome what was done to him on the cross. No, he rested on the Sabbath because he is God and because his work on the cross was perfect. Ladies, we need to believe this. We need to make sure that we're really believing this in our day-to-day life. Do we really believe that the gospel that the that saved us is still enough for us? That on this side of the cross, we don't need to add to the cross. It's completely sufficient for us. No more supplementing the gospel with our our good behavior or our attempts to impress God or earn his love. We need Jesus. We need the cross of Jesus and nothing else for salvation, for holy living. What else, though? Let's stay in this resurrection. This is the good news that we've been waiting for for all 16 chapters. What else does the resurrection say to us? So we challenged our minds to understand what that theme of Sabbath means. But what about for our hearts? What about for our souls? What does the resurrection do for us? Well, it offers us rest and peace. The cross bought for us rest and peace. I think it bears repeating Jesus' words from the book of Matthew. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ladies, I've been meditating on this a lot this week. Why do we fall short of that rest? I think sometimes it's because we don't even take the time to know that we're weary and heavy laden. Does that ring true for you at all? Are you just going so fast or going at such an intense pace? Are you wearing so many hats? Are you working so hard that you have not even taken time to become aware that you are burnt out, exhausted, not in a way that a nap would fix, but in a soulish way, in a spiritual way? This is, again, a huge part of my story in my walk with Jesus. I learned the good news of the gospel. I learned about chapters 15 and 16 as a young child, and I heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins all the time, and I'm thankful for that. And then I went into ministry alongside my husband, Matt, and we just started doing church work at a million miles per hour, wearing as many hats as I could. And it all came to a screeching halt. Here I was, I went from thinking I was in great spiritual shape to having some 
conflict that opened my eyes, that showed me I was in horrible spiritual shape. I, by the grace of God, realized in a very intense night that I, my whole life, had thought that I graduated from needing the gospel. You know, that like with time since my salvation at age seven, I needed God less and less each year as I figured out how to be a good Christian woman, as I figured out how to be a nurse, how to lead Bible studies, how to be a mom, how to run a home, fill in the blank. I was needing God less and less each year. And with that came less and less peace and rest each year. There's a book by Alan Craft that summed it up perfectly. It's, I, I was marching to the drumbeat of self-effort, of just try harder, just try harder. As I had thought that I graduated from the story of the cross and the empty tomb. But the gospel was inviting me to dance to the melody of brokenness. And to believe that the gospel that saved me was also going to sanctify me and was also going to sustain me. When we live believing the resurrection, far past just a cerebral knowing of it, we find peace and rest as we accept that good news for ourselves every single day. Ladies, we can come to Jesus because... That curtain was torn, and now we can draw near to the throne of grace daily, hourly, every minute. So our question is, why don't we? Why do we stay far off? Why do we keep God like at a safe, polite, or professional distance? Why do we stiff-arm him? That curtain was torn so that we don't have to stay out in the 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 parts of the temple that were for the women or the parts of the temple that were for the Gentiles, we can run all the way in, all the way into that throne, to that mercy seat. What else does this text speak speak to us? Well, I want to just, as we start to close, I want to point out a figure that we don't get, a character that we don't get a lot of details about, this man, Simon of Cyrene, the man who was compelled to carry Jesus's cross up the mountain. Compelled is used in several versions. Uh, A couple versions also says that they forced him, that the Roman soldiers forced him to carry the cross. But he carried the cross, and we talked about in our homework how that's a beautiful image of of what the book of Mark instructs us with discipleship, right? Jesus told us, told his disciples to carry, to be willing to deny themselves and to carry their cross. And here's a man who's doing that. And I don't know uh, exactly where he was at that moment, but isn't it interesting that it mentioned who his sons were? And I, I don't know if this is true, but it's worth sharing in case when we get to heaven, we find out that it is true. You know, it says who his sons are. And one of those names is used by, I think, the Apostle Paul later. Why? Why would Mark include their names? 
why maybe would Paul mention someone in his letters? Because there is a chance that Simon of Cyrene, who was a Jew coming in for Passover, that his sons became prominent leaders in the first century church. As a mom of boys, I could not look past this insight that a commentator had. Because I thought if I could learn to be willing to suffer with Jesus, if I would be willing to pick up my cross and to identify with Jesus as a crucified king, you know what, even if I have to be compelled or forced into some suffering, some anxiety, some depression, some hard times, even if the Spirit has to kind of compel me to do it, if I would just do it and then learn delight and joy along the way, what does that say to the people around me, especially to my children? If they could watch me learn to follow a crucified king, to lean into the hard times in life, could it make a difference in the lives of the people around me that maybe someday my boys would love Jesus themselves, would follow him and would serve him in the local church? And ladies, I see so many of you doing this. When I read about Simon of Cyrene, I think of you guys. I see you picking up your cross. I see you denying yourself. I see you living by faith, left and right. I see you moving forward toward Jesus, even when you are plagued with fear. I see you adopting, even if life would be easier if you didn't adopt. I see you bringing your brokenness before Jesus. I hear you confessing sin. I see you leading when you don't want to. I see you bringing meals to the hurting. You are doing a good job in this. Praise God for his work in us and through us. I am so proud to be surrounded by so many of you as you are an example to me of what it means to pick up your cross, to not come to be served, but to serve, to imitate Jesus in this way. Good job. Don't stop. Keep pushing. So ladies, how's the story end? In a weird way, right? How does the story end? Verse 7 of chapter 16, the angel picking up the conversation with the women, the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Did you have to read that twice in your homework this week? Isn't that the oddest ending? It's, it's like, I think the Bible Project guys say it this way. It's like the movie screen just goes black. The story is over and the audience walks out and kind of slowly gets it that the storyteller, the narrator is asking them a question. How would you respond? The, woman, the women's response turns to us and asking us, will we believe? 
Will we believe in the resurrected Jesus? And here is where we are at risk of nodding with a quick yes and not allowing that question to work its way down into our souls and out into our lives. Because if we close the book of Mark with just a a simple, warm-hearted agreement that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we're missing out, we have to ask our final question, how does this book want to change our lives? So as we close, come with me back to Mark's original audience. Remember, we think that he and Peter wrote this book together probably around the year 65 A.D. Imagine that you are a Gentile young woman, right? You are a Roman woman. That was Mark's audience. And you're hearing someone read this story to you. Do you remember the beginning of that good news? Those opening chapters, this Jesus character, is depicted as a king with power in a big place, right? He's moving all over the place in those first eight chapters. And the people are immediately doing what he says. People are immediately bowing down to him. Immediately, Jesus is getting a response. And maybe if you and I were sitting there listening to this telling of Mark's story, we would kind of mumble under our breath, well, that sounds familiar. Because who do we understand to be king in our life as Roman women? Caesar, right? I mean, what do we know of Caesar? It sounds a lot like the opening chapters of this Jesus story. See, we would listen to it and we would notice that just like Caesar, Jesus has this entourage and he's traveling all over the area and he sounds kind of like a conqueror where he's conquering lands and peoples. But if we sat there long enough and heard the story from Mark's, from Peter's point of view, the plot would unfold, the story would open, and we would see that this king figure, this Jesus figure, is nothing like Caesar. See, what we would know all too well is that Caesar used his power for his own gain, for his own glory. Caesar was a tyrant and dominated people, but not Jesus. Jesus was a teacher and a servant. Caesar took over lands and subdued people, but Jesus came to bring flourishing. Jesus came to restore. Jesus came to heal. He brought this Edenic goodness to the nations. Caesar came to be served. Jesus came to serve. And maybe we would make this really compelling connection that Jesus is the better Caesar. See, Jesus' kingdom, as backwards as it was or as upside down as it was, was a far better kingdom than the one that we would see. And so maybe if, if we were these Roman women sitting there making this connection, or maybe if it was just you and I sitting in our Bible study small group, we would ask this question, okay, if Jesus is so clearly the better Caesar, if Jesus is a good, good king, then what do I immediately need to do? Believe? Yeah. Repent? Yeah. Drop my nets? 
Should I immediately push through my excuses so that I can be near to him and let him heal me? Do I immediately need to push into the house and anoint him? Do I immediately bring him my hurting friends and my family, those who are crippled by the blows of life? Do I want to endure the storms well? What is it for you guys if Jesus is the better king? What do you need to do now? Apologize? Worship? Give away your money? Give away your time? Confess? What is it that you are being invited to do because of who Jesus is? Ladies, Jesus is king. We are not. And we're living in his kingdom. Which means it's not our kingdom. And that's good news. Maybe I think that my own little kingdom would be the best thing where I hold the power. Or I have my domain, my place. You know, my work, my kitchen, my territory, my little family, my people that are here to make me look good or bow to my wishes. It pales, guys. Our kingdom, where we're the queen, it pales. The book of Mark has shown us how very, very good Jesus is as he has brought the good news that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Help us to repent and believe. Hear us say that we do believe, but we still want you to help us with our unbelief. And Lord, help us to receive your kingdom like children. Help us to anticipate the day when you will come and bring your kingdom more fully where there will no longer be any sin or sickness. You will dry our last tear, and we will live forever reigning in your kingdom. Until that day, Lord, we wait with expectation. Amen. Mm-hmm.